Hi, and welcome to Meritocracy, the history and story of the High School of American Studies. My name is Stephen Dames, and I'm a high school senior at HSAS and a journalist for our school newspaper, Common Sense. After crafting and listening to the previous episode, I realized that I may not have been clear enough about how I'm planning on telling the story of HSAS and why I'm choosing to tell the story the way that I'm telling it. By starting with the advent of tiered public education in New York City, and by following the various developments that have led to the specialized high school system today, I am telling the story of my school in a needed context. Without the developments that I have and will continue to talk about on this podcast, the very idea for our school and the reforms and developments that have taken place within it and throughout its relatively short history would not exist. A line that is taught to every freshman in their first year of AP U.S. history is the following. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, from Mark Twain. It is following in this spirit that makes me believe that by looking into the history of how specialized or tiered high schools have evolved over time, we can look into the future and see how the High School of American Studies will evolve or grow over the years when responding to various circumstances. On today's episode, I'll get into the meat of the creation of what we know today as the specialized high school system, as well as the first few efforts to reform this new type of education. By looking at this history, we'll be able to track the evolution of public education in America, and we will be able to see why and how the High School of American Studies came to be. Welcome to Meritocracy, the history and story of the High School of American Studies. Episode 2, Education Evolves. To start off today's episode, I'd first like to say that what I cover today is by no means comprehensive. This podcast is designed as a general overview of a large swath of history, leading to a much more specific analysis of the history of one school, and does not include many, if not most, of the most important events. However, by moving at the pace at which we will move, I hope to impart a sense of how the flow of legislation, protest, and reform has worked in the sphere of New York public education. As most of us know, in 1954, the biggest Supreme Court ruling in the history of American education was decided. The Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education, was the result of a long series of battles between states, individuals, and the federal government having to do with state-enforced segregation of schools. On May 14th, 1954, the Supreme Court issued its decision that separate institutions for different races are unequal and that schools and other public facilities must be immediately desegregated. Of course, the Supreme Court decision had a myriad effects of various aspects of American life and defined not only its decade but its century. But in the sphere of the New York City school system specifically, this ruling had a strangely muted effect. Desegregation in the school system went at a snail's pace, and integration as policy was never truly enacted in the 1950s. Fed up with the continued inaction of the city government and with the huge amount of inequities in public education in the city, on the morning of February 3, 1964, millions of students and teachers, led by the Multiracial Citywide Committee for Integration, boycotted school. 
seen as one of the largest displays of collective city civil disobedience in U.S. history, the protest shamed the city and state governments into adopting integration as a major issue. Backers of integration argued with both conservative white families who opposed measures such as busing and moderates who sought to somehow compromise on the quote-unquote racial issue in schools. On that cold day in 1964, students as young as four stood side to side with union teachers and militant high school students, holding signs with slogans such as, Integration is an education, and Fight Jim Crow, Boycott Schools. It was truly one of the most impressive protests in the history of New York City and perhaps of 20th century America. In a speech given on the 64th anniversary of the Brown decision, former NYC Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza had the following to say, The question I have for all of us tonight is, 64 years later, what do we, the collective we, have to show for it? I will tell you that in communities across America, the answer is not much. If this protest was so large and the demand for integration so great, why is New York City's school system still as segregated, and some people say it's even more, than it was in the 1950s? The answer, unsurprisingly, was that the reforms that passed the state legislature in Albany and that were signed by the governor were both mostly muted and focused on the wrong things. In 1965, a member of Parents and Taxpayers, an anti-busing and anti-immigration group, said the following in regards to the political fight in Albany over integration in 1965. I think we can say it, look, it looks like it's going to be a quote-unquote argumentative year. Of course, this, this prediction ended up being mostly correct, as the Board of Education's desegregation and busing plan fell apart slowly over the next few years, as opposition grew and the righteous and revolutionary 60s gave way to the more conservative and institutionalist 1970s. Starting in the spring of 1971, lawmakers in Albany began drafting the piece of legislation that would come both to codify and define the specialized high school system to this day. Legislators in Albany believed that by protecting the city's quote-unquote best schools was an imperative, and by mandating testing at these elite high schools, at the time they were Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, and the newly created LaGuardia High School for the Arts, they could protect them against any future integration efforts. These legislatures were in a hurry, however, as public outcry was growing about these tests, and even the city's, and even the city school's head signaled to parents and students that he thought the single-test policy completely discriminatory and culturally biased, and that he was willing to rethink the way that students were admitted into these elite schools. For context, in 1971, 10% of students who attended Stuyvesant High School were black, and, for added context, in 2019, this percentage was lower than 1%. One parent group from the Bronx High School of Science is quoted saying that, Specialized high schools could be saved only if, once and for all, it is established there can, that there can be no tampering with the standards of merit and achievement that have been the basis of admission. Boosted by these vocal parents, a majority of the state government passed the Hecht Calendra Bill, which designated our four elite high schools as specialized and mandated that a single method for entrance into these schools would be a test. Even though allegations of racism, bias, and discrimination were hurled on the floor of the state Senate, 
It remains today one of the most provocative and loud debates ever held in this chamber. And even after millions of teachers and students protested against segregation, even quote-unquote progressive state senators and assembly people voted in favor of this bill. It was overwhelmingly passed. As was said before, this bill is the one that keeps schools such as Stuyvesant and Bronx Science to this day immune from any citywide changes to testing or to any sort of tiered education whatsoever. In order to change the way that the Bronx High School of Science, Brooklyn Tech, LaGuardia, or Stuyvesant changes their admissions methods, this law would need to be repealed or amended. Now, in order to get the full context, I will read the transcript of the most pertinent part of the bill. Establish and maintain special high schools which shall at least include the Bronx High School of Science, Stuyvesant High School, Brooklyn Technical High School, Fiorio H. LaGuardia High School of Music and the Arts, and such further high schools which the Board of Education may designate from time to time. Admissions to the Bronx High School of Science, Stuyvesant High School, and Brooklyn Technical High School, and such similar further special high schools which may be established, shall be solely and exclusively by taking a competitive, objective, and scholastic achievement examination, which shall be open to each and every child in, in the New York City in the eighth or ninth year of study, in accordance with the rules promulgated by the NYC Board of Education, without regard to any school district wherein the child may reside. No candidate may be admitted to a special high school unless he has successfully achieved a score above the cutoff score for the openings in the school for which he has taken the examination. This is the bill. The bill which has so defined the lives of New York City high school students for the many decades after it. It is the bill that has made our lives and made our schools the way they are. Though, of course, the High School of American Studies is not designated a specialized high school in, in this bill, and therefore our admissions methods can be changed without overturning state law. It is this precedent, the enshrining of a test for four single schools in a state law that has made our system what it is today. There is no precedent for this bill, and very few like it have ever been passed since then. It is a thing unto itself. If you're interested in this period in history, here are a few things to research further in order to gain more context for the events detailed in today's episode. First of all, I have not gone into, almost at all, the fight between the city and the state for control of New York City's high schools. An important event in this, which should probably be noted, is that in 1969, the state removed the City Board of Education from mayoral control and reorganized the city's public school system into community districts. This created 32 community school boards and a seven-member central board of education. This is appointed by the borough presidents at this time and the mayor. This board then goes on to choose the school chancellor. This, all this means is that local elementary and middle schools remain, had, were under control of this board, while high schools remained under the control of the Central Board of Education, as well as, you know, school construction, budgeting, maintenance. These community school boards were able to govern small schools. It was the single 
only experiment in local control of education in New York City. Um, this bill was pretty much passed on the coattails of a massive teacher strike in the year of 1968, which was, of course, one of the most important years in 20th century U.S. history, both in terms of labor battles, but also just cultural battles. It made the 60s. Uh, looking back a little further, we can also look at the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, which was one of Lyndon B. Johnson's crucial War on Poverty campaign acts. Um, among its provisions is the dissemination of federal funds to school districts with low-income students. We know these today as Title I funding. This was in order to improve educational outcomes among poor students. And to this day, school systems such as New York City receive Title I funding and need Title I funding in order to provide adequate education to low-income communities. This, Both of these things were crucial, but we didn't have much time in today's episode to dive deep into them. If you're interested, there are plenty of resources, and I'll, and I'll put some links in the show notes. Next week, I'll talk about the expansion of the SHSAT into the form that we know it in today. And finally, after long last, I'll talk about the creation of the High School of American Studies, and I'll start briefly on its early history. Looking ahead, we'll also hopefully have interviews with both teachers and students at the high school, possibly even alumni, and we'll begun to talk a little bit more about the modern struggles for integration and whether anything will come of them or whether, like the struggles in the 1960s, they will be overshadowed by parent groups or special interest groups that seek to prevent integration and diversity in high schools. Thank you very much.